Oh man, Dao De Ching. Yeah, I am not equipped to lecture on this one. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, if it isn't obvious, this text is very ambiguous, very abstract. Um, it is not interested in sort of concrete philosophy the way that we've seen in Plato, um, and as you've probably suggested elsewhere. Um, what I want to stress in this sort of freeform lecture, and yes, it's going to be very freeform, like usually when I teach the Tao Te Ching, I, I don't even lecture at all. I basically just show up and answer questions, and we talk about passages. And we just go, like, there's no structure, there's no plan, there's just whatever comes up. Um, but here I am, sitting in front of my computer, with an hour of lecture to fill, and just the text. And there's plenty to talk about, like, you could talk about this text forever, and, and then some. Um, but, again, this is sort of abnormal and inappropriate, I think, um, for me to just act like I know what I'm talking about when I talk about the Tao Te Ching. Um, like I was trying to say earlier before I got distracted, this is sort of the one foray our class is going to have into Eastern philosophy. Um, for the most part, like, when we talk about philosophy, at least, you know, here in the States, we're talking about Western philosophy, we're talking about Plato, and we're talking about Aristotle, and we're talking about modern philosophy like Descartes and Immanuel Kant and, you know, contemporary philosophy like Wittgenstein and Sartre and stuff like that. Um, there has been a greater push in recent memory to incorporate more Eastern philosophers into the curriculum, um, but it hasn't exactly succeeded. Um, like, Eastern philosophy is actually really rich and really involved and really interesting and really helpful as sort of an antidote to what Western philosophy tends to get obsessed and interested with. Um, in my own study, I was fortunate enough when I was an undergrad to have a professor who was very interested in Eastern philosophy. Um, this is where I first read the Tao Te Ching, um, as well as numerous texts on Buddhism and um, a little bit of Hinduism and other stuff of that nature. Um, and I've always sort of been interested in Eastern philosophy. Like, I've gotten lucky in finding lots of professors who, who have sort of had a vested interest in, in the sort of thinking of the East as well as the thinking of the West. Um, so I've done my fair share of studying. Like, I took an entire class on Chinese philosophy when I, during my undergrad. Um, I've studied Hinduism and Buddhism in multiple contexts. Um, I've read the Tao Te Ching probably, like, three dozen times at this point. Um, but it's not clear. <laughs> it's not meant to be clear. Um, that's not the intention. Western philosophy, as well as Western religion, is very interested in precision. Um, it wants to express very carefully and very precisely and very specifically what it has to say. Um, but Eastern philosophy does not. Eastern philosophy repeatedly emphasizes that language and um, the usual means of expression are limited and insufficient to what we're talking about here. Um, and that's why I find it so important to incorporate at least one week of us talking about this very radically different perspective. Um, and it is totally insufficient. Like, it, it, I, I mean, you could spend whole semesters just studying Taoism alone 
much less Taoism and Buddhism and Confucianism and Hinduism and, you know, all of the various, like, different offshoot religions and philosophies that have sprung out of this. Um, we get a week. Like, that's it. Um, and that's really a bummer. So I'd highly recommend, like, especially if this interests you, talk to me about it. Like, send me an email, ask more about it, find other people who are interested in this stuff and, and pursue it more deeply. Because um, it's really a shame that we don't get to go deeper into this. Um, Eastern philosophy has had a radical impact on Western philosophy, especially in like since the late 19th century. Um, but it's also just a really rich tradition in its own right. Um, and probably one that resonates with you, like it resonates with me after all. So with that in mind, like I said, this lecture is going to be really freeform and really abstract, and I apologize if it just sort of seems to go nowhere, um, but that is also kind of the intention. Um, and I apologize if I have not warned you about this text beforehand. Like, it is a huge difference from Plato um, and from any of the other texts that we're going to read in here, like before this and afterwards. Um, but I hope that you still found meaning in it. I hope that it still fired your imagination or, you know, caused you to stop and rethink um, your assumptions. Like, both this and Ecclesiastes, which I'll be talking about next week, this is our sort of foray into the religious side of philosophy. Um, but, you know, again, we only spend this one week in the East. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't even know where I'm going at this point. Like... <laughs> This is not a great start, um, but I want to be honest on this one more than anything. I think that that's more in line with what Lao Tzu would like. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Um, as I've discussed before, the sort of overarching theme for this class, um, at least this semester, is um, what is the nature of God? And that's... <laughs> it's incredibly important to get this sort of alternative notion of what God could be um, from Taoism and from Buddhism. Because essentially, Taoism and Buddhism are both atheistic religions, at least on paper. Um, they don't have a God. Tao is kind of like God. There are a lot of similarities to God. Like, it wouldn't be a stretch to call Tao God, but it wouldn't be entirely appropriate either. Um, and there are several reasons for this. Like, the most obvious is the reason that Tao, or that Lao Tzu stresses at the very beginning of the text in stanza one. Like, the very first lines of this text are, Tao called Tao is not Tao. Names can name no lasting name. Nameless, the origin of heaven and earth, naming the mother of ten thousand things. Um, this can be interpreted in a wide variety of ways, like... The, the Tao Te Ching is actually um, the second most widely translated uh, text of any kind in the world, so far as I know of, only after the Bible, um, which, you know, the reasons for why the Bible gets translated into all these different languages are fairly obvious and self-explanatory, I think. Um, but unlike the Bible, Taoism isn't intended as, you know, a missionary work. Like, people don't translate the Tao Te Ching into... Um, different languages for the sake of like converting people to Taoism. No, the the issue here is that the text is deliberately abstract and ambiguous. Like the language itself is deliberately abstract and ambiguous. Lao Tzu avoids meaning in this text, um, which is strange. 
but I think we like that's part of the text itself honestly like he's explaining to us that you can't pin Dao down um, Dao called Dao is not Dao whatever you have in mind when he says the name Dao that's not the real Dao um, and that's sort of the first principle we have to pin down as far as like what is the Dao um, the Tao is something that cannot be described or expressed or named. Um, the Tao is itself, it is like most importantly itself, but it is not a thing that can be understood. It cannot be quantified or clarified. You cannot give a formal definition of what the Tao is. Um, whatever you find in the dictionary under Tao is going to be wrong. Um, and this is, like, I realize that this is very abstract and very difficult to convey online in a recorded lecture. Um, but, you know, if you look at other passages throughout this text, you'll get a slightly better idea of what the Tao is, usually through Lao Tzu's metaphors and his descriptions and his images. Um, but he's never going to come out and say, like, the Tao is X, the Tao is good, or the Tao is omnipotent, or the Tao is everything, or the Tao is some pantheistic entity, or, you know, like, that's not what he's interested in doing. Um, and in fact, what he's suggesting is that anyone who does try to understand the Tao through, you know, complex philosophical language is doing it wrong. Um, you're never going to get there from here. Um, and this is one of those things that is in common with a lot of Eastern philosophy. Eastern philosophy tends to be more practical. Um, it's not something you learn. It's not something you know. It's not something you understand. It's something you do. It's something that you sort of comprehend on a level beyond the intellectual. Um, and frequently, Eastern philosophy sort of tries to, to sort of undermine your attempts to understand it, and instead looks for alternative routes to sort of religious enlightenment, uh, for, back of, for lack of a better term. Like in Buddhism, they literally talk about how the Buddha was enlightened, um, and how, you know, you too can reach enlightenment if you, you know, perform the same, you know, if, if you walk the same path, so to speak. Um, Taoism doesn't have a formal enlightenment, like, that's not the goal here. Um, but if the goal is to know the Tao, to become like the Taoist sage, um, that is similar to enlightenment. It is very close to it insofar as we're talking about, like, becoming something better than what you are, familiarizing yourself with the Tao, knowing it in a way that it, you don't know, like, 2 plus 2 equals 4, but knowing it in the sense that, like, uh, you know a friend. Um, that you know what will happen when you have insight about the world. Um, you know what to do in a sport or in a game um, because you've played it so many times, because you've got the muscle memory, or because you've just you know been in this situation dozens and dozens of times before. Um, the Tao is about that experiential awareness, that experiential knowledge, and not formal book knowledge. Um, Lao Tzu expressly rejects throughout this text learning, um, book knowledge, scholarship. Um, that's not the way you get to the Tao. Um, now, 
as far as like that connection to Buddhism is concerned, um, again, I am all over the place. There is no plan. There is only chaos. Um, as far as the connection to Buddhism is concerned, like I think especially of the Zen Buddhists, um, which you've probably heard of, like they're fairly, I want to say popular, but that's not exactly the right term. They're fairly well known. Um, Zen Buddhism is the Japanese um, sort of derivation of the Chen Buddhists of China. Um, and the, the trick with, the, with Zen Buddhism as sort of this illustration of how you get to enlightenment, but not intentionally. Like, how do you become enlightened indirectly, practically, but not, like, logically? Um, the Zen Buddhists believe in sudden enlightenment. Enlightenment that, like, surprises you. Um, sort of, that grabs you unawares. Um, like, in the, in the typical Buddhist mainline religion, there are sort of two ways to get enlightenment, either like through careful study and through like self-purification and um, disciplining your passions so that they do not control you, much like Taoism does. Um, and then you've got the Mahayana Buddhists, which very much look like a formal religion, and like Buddha is revered as a god, and it, it's a whole different thing. Um, but the Zen Buddhists... The Zen Buddhists hold that you achieve enlightenment by surprise. Um, you achieve enlightenment when you're not actually prepared for it. And in fact, the more you prepare yourself for enlightenment, the further you are from it. Um, like Taoism, the stress is on balance. The stress is on confusion. The stress is on modesty. Um, instead of seeking enlightenment, you have to have it sneak up on you. Um, so one of the ways that Zen Buddhists do this is they tell these little, like, logical paradoxes called koans. Um, and in a koan, um, it is deliberately absurd, like deliberately confusing or obscure. And your Zen master will tell this koan to you and you will reflect on it. Um, and when you reach the point that you are, like, least able to understand it, that's when you are enlightened. Um, so, for example, like one of the most famous Zen koans is "What is the sound of one hand clapping?" Um, and obviously, like you can't make a sound with one hand clapping. Like I've always had students who like come up with something sneaky. Like they'll bend their they'll bend their fingers forward and they'll make like a clap with just their fingers on their the heel of their hand. Um, but that's not what is meant here. The whole point is you can't clap with one hand. It's absurd. Um, but that's what is enlightening about it. Like, the proper Zen monk meditates on this, realizes the absurdity, and then in that moment will become enlightened. Um, one of my other favorites, which is a little bit more involved, um, apparently this one Zen master, like, th there's a story told or recounted in one, one of the literature, one of the books of the, the Zen tradition, um, that there were these two monasteries, two Zen monasteries, very close to one another, um, and the monks were getting a bit of a rivalry going, like, this happens among monks, they, they get territorial, um, and one day this cat shows up at one of the monasteries, um, and, like, the monks get very fond of the cat and they take care of the cat and they feed the cat and so on and so forth. But it turns out that the cat has also been visiting the other monastery and he's been getting fed there and like he's been, you know, like hanging out at the this other monastery and the, the monks are like, all right, well, whose cat is it? 
like which which cat which monastery does the cat actually belong to um and there's a lot of fighting about it like the monks are actually like breaking into fist fights between the two monasteries about like who gets to to own and possess the cat um and finally like at one point like the cat is killed um like the the violence gets so bad that like somebody murders the cat in cold blood to sort of like you know get back at the other monastery for stealing it at one point um and the monk one of the monks comes to the abbot of the of the monastery and he says abbot like we had this whole this whole cat thing and we had like we thought we owned the cat but it turns out that this other monastery they were trying to own the cat now the cat is dead like what do we do how do we resolve this and apparently according to the story the abbot took his shoes off put them on his head and walked out of the room and that's it like that's the end of the story that's that's as much of a conclusion as we get and this is what like this is typical of the zen tradition and of eastern philosophy in general the answer doesn't necessarily make sense the answer may deliberately not make sense like how do you solve this massive problem how do you face the evil of the world and the absurdity of the situation well you put your shoes on your head and you walk out of the room and there are a bunch of ways that you can interpret this like you can try and articulate what the abbot said maybe he's arguing that like the universe's values are flipped over and therefore he puts his shoes on his head to indicate that he's basically walking upside down or in an upside down world or maybe he leaves the room because he rejects everything that has gone on like every part of this is so rotten so you know against what buddhism represents that he you know just flat out shuts down and leaves because you know there is nothing to be found here um all of these are perfectly rational interpretations but that doesn't explain it and that doesn't solve the problem um instead there's some or the idea is that there's some kind of greater wisdom at stake here um, the abbot understands the situation far better than any of the monks and this is the appropriate response like uniquely appropriate um and the proper zen student will reflect on this and understand why um and i like i said i i don't have an answer i don't i can't articulate it to you i am not enlightened um that's something that you have to achieve something that you have to do um you can't find it written in a book somewhere um likewise in the Tao Te Ching um the Tao isn't something you can know in the sense that you can know facts and figures you can know dates and times you can you know know how to put together a, a radio um instead the Tao is abstract like this the Tao is unachievable like this um, and all of the things that you will see describing the Tao in this text are indirect, ambiguous. They're vague descriptions at best. Um, so one of the key things that you'll see over and over in the Tao Te Ching um, about the Tao is that it is empty. Um, this is one of the characteristic qualities of the Tao. Um, so you'll notice that like uh, it is compared to to an empty vase or an empty jar um to a bellows um all of the these passages suggest that what makes the Tao important is the very fact that it is empty um so take for example stanza 11 um 30 spokes join one hub the wheels use come 
comes from emptiness. Clay is fired to make a pot. The pot's use comes from emptiness. Windows and doors are cut to make a room. The room's use comes from emptiness. Therefore, having leads to profit, but not having leads to use. Now, think about the example that is being presented here. Like, take the room, for example. Um, a room that is filled with stuff is no longer useful. You can't go into it. You can't, like, move stuff around. Um, you only can use a room, like a dining room or a classroom or, you know, a conference room, if there's room for people to be. Um, the use of the room is the fact that it is empty, or mostly empty. Um, like a warehouse, as a room, still only functions if you can move around in it, if you can, like, get stuff and find stuff. Um, it has to be largely empty, even when it is full, um, or else it doesn't function. Like, it's useless. It stops being useful. Um, and the Tao is comparable. Like, the other thing that you will hear about the Tao is that it is frequently described as creative. It generates the heaven and earth and the 10,000 things. Um, it is compared to, like, a, a mother, um, a woman, specifically because a woman like the Tao can produce life. Um, but it has to do it by being empty. Like, the womb has to be empty for life to be able to grow there. And I, I'm sure I'll come back to, you know, the, the comparison between the Tao and, and women and the, the sort of childbirth metaphor, um, because it's a really important and really significant one. Um, but the emphasis throughout here is that empty things are creative. Empty things are useful in a way that full things are not. Um, one of the central images of Taoism, one that you've probably run into before, um, is the yin-yang symbol. Like, you've got the, the white on the one side and the black on the other and the circle, and like the little dots of black and white in the center of, the other, of each half. Um, this is a Taoist symbol, um, and it represents the, the conflict and the, the harmony between, on the one hand, the, the principle of yin, and on the other, the principle of yang. Um, and while I always get the two confused, and I apologize if I get them reversed, um, one, I believe it's yin, is the masculine force. Um, it is violent, and it is tumultuous, and it is usually, like, angry and direct. It's about controlling the world, exerting force over the world. Whereas yang is the female side. It is dark, it is mysterious, it is empty, it is yielding. Um, and the Tao Te Ching frequently emphasizes that the female side is superior. Um, like, it's not an issue of balance so much as it is an issue of direct superiority. Um, the masculine force is assumed. Like, it's always out there. People are always fighting. People are always acquiring. People are always stealing from each other or trying to exert their will over each other or trying to exert their will over the universe. By contrast, Lao Tzu insists that the female gets stuff done. Um, yang, the, the darkness, the emptiness, um, the yielding quality is actually far more powerful and endures far better than the brittle masculine force. Um, and this is emphasized all over the text. 
um, the fact that like the, um, the baby, the the young child, is itself more in tune with the Tao that it can like howl all day and not exhaust itself. That is harmony to Lao Tzu. That is endurance to Lao Tzu. Um, it is in tune with what it is. By contrast, old people who have you know been around the world and have gotten all their profit and um, who you know are, have gotten used to exerting their will over the world, they they will die soon. They are not Tao. Um, they will they are brittle and will pass away. Um, Tao, by being empty, by having nothing, is capable of anything. Um, but those people who try and like possess lots of things or become something that they're not, those people are fake and false. They cannot produce anything. They can only destroy at that point. Um, so the Tao is, on the one hand, empty. On the other hand, creative. It endures. It is infinite. But the sort of like key thing tying it all together, which is really abstract and really difficult to to sort of wrap your brain around, but is a really important philosophical concept, honestly, is the idea that Tao is itself. Like, of all the things in the universe, the Tao is most itself. And I realize that, like, this is, this is tough to explain. Words really fail here. Um, so think instead of, you know, the sort of hackneyed adage of growing up like i'm sure that your high school teachers would tell you this and like you know it's very after school special um but you would you would be told be yourself like don't let other people control you always be yourself and it's 99 percent of the time it's bullshit when people tell it to you like i, I want to stress that uh, when people tell you to be yourself like Usually it's in the context of like an advertisement telling you to buy shit or like it's in the context of someone, you know, trying to convince you not to do something that they think is wrong or bad. Um, and in that case, what they're really saying is be more like me um, or, you know, do what I want you to do, not be yourself in the real sense. Because on some level, like in order to be yourself, you actually have to give up a lot of what we typically identify as ourselves. Um, like, who we are, who I am, for example, like, I obviously can't speak to your situation because at this point, we haven't even met. Um, I am recording this before our first meeting for this class. Um, when I think of, like, who I am, like, if you introduce yourself at a party to someone, like, if somebody says, you know, or if you're, like, being introduced to somebody for the first time, usually you start off with things that are completely superficial. Like, you'll start off with your name. Hi, I'm Benjamin Kozlowski. I am an adjunct professor at this school, this school, and this school. Um, that's bullshit. Like, what does that have to do with who I am? Like, we... we the first thing that we were told in this text is that the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. Tao called Tao is not Tao. Um, and the first thing I lead with when I introduce myself to someone is my name. Like, what, is, what the hell does that tell them? Um, like, there are tons of people named Ben. There are tons of people named Kozlowski. Like, this was actually a really popular Polish name. It's like Smith in Poland. 
Um, so it's not especially helpful. Like, it tells them absolutely nothing about me. Likewise, when you start, when the next thing you say is, you know, what is your job? Like, how, what, what does that have anything to do with you? Um, since when does your job define who you are? Like, how warped is it that this is, this is the first bit of information that anybody wants to know about you? Um, when we say be yourself, we're talking about, like, the deep parts of yourself, your hopes and your dreams, what you envision yourself to be, um, but even on a more fundamental level, that's kind of broken too. Like, that's the thing about the Tao. It doesn't have to live up to anybody else's standards, and it doesn't. Um, and that's what Tao, what Lao Tzu is emphasizing about the Tao. The Tao doesn't have expectations. Um, it doesn't hope and it doesn't dream because it is what it wants to be. Like, there's no transformation for the Tao. There's no need for change. Like, it produces, and, you know, it is malleable in that sense. It is empty and it is yielding, but it doesn't have to be something. It just is what it is. Like, can you imagine that for a moment? Can you, like, wrap your brain around the idea that, you know, you could be something without any reference to anything else? Like, not in the sense of solipsism, like you are, you were only 100% focused on yourself, because the Taoist sage is not a solipsist in that sense. Um, it is not a narcissist. It is not, like, self-obsessed. But instead, it is completely against self-obsession in some way. Like, people who are self-obsessed are usually obsessed with who they want to become. They think that they're something they are not. Like, they think that they're the coolest person on the earth, but in fact, nobody can stand them. Like, that's the mark of a narcissist, of a self-obsessed person. But instead, the Tao is entirely in tune with itself. It is not deceiving itself in any way. It is not aspiring to be something that it's not. Instead, it's perfectly happy with what it is now, at this moment. Like, again, trying to wrap your brain around this, trying to, like see how this apply, could apply to your own life, how a Taoist sage actually looks. Like, right now, you're probably, you know, listening to this lecture at home or in the car or wherever, um, and the reason why you're listening to it is probably because, you know, you're worried about taking the quiz or the response paper this week. Um, you want to pass this class. You know that you are responsible for listening to this lecture, although you would much rather be, you know, watching Netflix or scrolling through stuff on Facebook if you're not already, um, or going through Instagram or playing a video game or hanging out with your friends or who knows. Um, imagine if, for a moment, you didn't have to worry about any of that. Like, none of it. Like, not your grade, not, you know, getting a good job or, you know, finding getting lots of money when you when you grow up like not even stuff like your friends or your social responsibilities on social media like none of that matters for the Taoist sage um what matters is who you are at this moment not who you're going to be not who you could be not who you want to be not who you'd rather be but just who you are like, 
at this instant, irrelevant to all of those expectations, all those people who want you to be something different, including yourself. Instead, you just are you. Like, you're happy with who you are. You have no desire or need to become anything other than who you are. You have no outside pressure to become something other than who you are. Um, and the need to do things to change who you are is gone. Like, no self-perfection, no weight loss regimen, no reading to become a smarter person. No, none of that. The Tao is perfect as is. The Taoist sage is perfect as is. The Taoist sage does not feel any outside force trying to like compel it to do things. And if it does, it resists it powerfully. There is no sense of like potential or actuality. Like it is actual right now. Um, when Aristotle coins these terms, like potential versus actual, like the idea is, you know, you are potentially something other than what you are, but you are actually whatever you are at that moment. The Tao is pure actuality. It is what it is. It does what it is. What it is springs naturally from what it is. What it does springs naturally from what it is. It is not trying to be something it's not. It's not becoming something that it's not. It just is all the way through. And in being like that, it is also empty and creative and powerful. Um, there's nothing to be destroyed. That's part of the power that gets pointed to here. Like you'll, you'll notice there's that great passage that the Taoist sage talks about later on in the text about... Um, let me see if I can find it. I'm, again, all over the place here. Um, about how the Taoist sage has no mortal spot. Um, how, like a baby, you know, it can't be harmed. The passage is uh, stanza 50. It says, You have heard of people good at holding on to life. Walking over land, they don't avoid rhinos and tigers. In battle, they don't arm themselves. The rhino's horn finds nothing to gore. The tiger's claws find nothing to flay. Weapons find nothing to pierce. Why is this? They have no mortal spot. Like, there's nothing to be taken away. That is what the Taoist sage, ideally, is. Because that's what the Tao is. There's nothing to destroy. There's nothing to kill. There's nothing to harm. There's no weak spot. Because they are what they are. And they're content with that. Like, there's no need to become something else. There's no potential to be realized. Like, when people die, we get upset because we're like, no, I wanted to spend more time with that person. Like, I wanted to, to you know, see them fulfill their potential. But imagine that you don't have any. Then dying isn't an issue. Like, you're not scared of death because you're happy with who you are. You've accomplished everything that you wanted to accomplish. You have no reason to continue living. Which is not to say that, like, you're suicidal or something. Just, you are content to live and you are content not to live. There's no reason to prefer one or the other because you are perfect harmony with who you are. 
There's no goal that you have yet to accomplish because you don't have goals. There is no perfection that you are trying to attain because you see yourself as perfect right now. Um, there's nothing to be afraid of in that case. Nobody can take away who you are. And the Tao is the same. Like, the Tao doesn't have a mortal spot. It cannot be diminished or destroyed because it is what it is. Like, all the way through. Um, and I think there's something terribly profound about that. Terribly encouraging. Like, something that we can't even, like, fully understand or express. This idea that, you know, you are what you are and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that um except for the fact that you are concerned that you aren't that like again you know we just don't have words and trying to sort of get at it is really difficult um but i think this is a lot of what lao tzu is trying to express here that the dao and the Taoist sage as well, they are not lying to themselves. Um, they are very much in tune with themselves. They are what they are. Um, and that's a good thing. Like, that's the ideal thing. Um, it's not about becoming a better person. It's about being a, the best version of who you already are. Um, it's not about, you know, perfecting yourself. It's about being yourself um just being what you already are um but again like i feel like my words are failing me here and that this is really abstract and also not fully expressing everything that's going on here um so let's look at another sort of corresponding issue in this text um a lot of this has to do with de um te in the text and I realize that, like, if Tao is confusing, De is also confusing, and now we've got, like, these two confusing things that we're trying to deal with here. Um, if Tao is the thing, like, and trust me when I say that, you know, even that is sort of ambiguous. Like, it seems like Tao is process. Frequently, um, again, like, this is a very widely translated text. Lots of different people translated in lots of different ways because the, the language is literally so ambiguous is meant to inspire many different possible meanings. Um, one of the ways that this text is usually translated, uh, they usually translate the word Tao as the way. Um, so that first line, Tao called Tao is not Tao, is often translated as the way that can be walked is not the eternal way. Um, which, you know, just brings up even more confusion and, like, ambiguity. Um, but if Tao is the thing, if Tao is the entity, like, the object, the aspiration of, you know, perfect self-like actualization, De is the virtue. De is what you need to have in order to become that. Um, so... Let's look at, you know, again, because words fail, let's look at uh, stanza 38, because I think this one is especially illuminating about what de actually is and involves. Um, so stanza 38 says, high de, no de, that's what de is. Low de doesn't lack de, that's what de is not. 
Those highest in de take no action and don't need to act. Those lowest in de take action and do need to act. Those highest in benevolence take action but don't need to act. Those highest in righteousness take action and do need to act. Those highest in propriety take action and if people don't reciprocate, roll up their sleeves and throw them out. Therefore, lose Tao and de follows. Lose de and benevolence follows. Lose benevolence and righteousness follows. Lose righteousness and propriety follows. Propriety dilutes loyalty and sincerity. Confusion begins. Foreknowledge glorifies the Tao. Stupidity sets in. And so the ideal person dwells in substance, not dilution. In reality, not glory. Accepts one, rejects the other. Now, I realize there's a lot here, and it is really ambiguous, but I want to draw a special attention to the succession that is sort of established here. There's high de and there's low de. High de follows the Tao. Low de follows it, but not as well as high de does. But when you lose de, you get benevolence. And when you lose benevolence, you get righteousness. And when you lose righteousness, you get propriety. But notice the way that these things are characterized in the third part of the stanza. Those highest in de take no action and don't need to act. This is the ideal. Um, you do not act and you do not need to act. And frequently throughout this text you will see that like inaction is the highest virtue of the Taoist sage. Act without acting, the text says over and over again. Um, so if you are not acting and you do not need to act, that is as close to perfection as you're ever going to get. That is the highest de. That is in, most in tune with the Tao. The Tao does not act. It just does what it does. And as a result, everything falls in a line. Likewise, the Taoist sage who has high de does not act and does not need to act. And the world falls into line behind him. Now those lowest in de take action and do need to act. They act when they need to act. They do what needs to be done. So those highest in de don't need to act and don't act. Those who have the lowest amount of de take action and do need to act. They do what needs to be done. But if you don't have de, then you fall into these other categories. So those highest in benevolence, they take action but don't need to act. Now, I realize, like, the terms here are a little ambiguous. When we talk about benevolence, we usually mean generosity. Like, people who are good. Um, philanthropists. People who are, who, you know, are good to others unnecessarily. Um, and that's a good thing, generally speaking. Like, we generally think of benevolent people as being positive, helping society. But notice that you're only benevolent after you lose your de in this passage. Benevolence is good, but de is better. And notice how it is characterized here. Those highest in benevolence take action, but don't need to act. They act when it's not necessary. And there's something suspicious about this, as far as the text is concerned. Um, a benevolent person is not in tune with the Tao. They're not bad. They are certainly not as bad as the righteous or the propriety, like later on. But they're still out of sync. Unlike those who have de, who act when they need to act or don't act because they don't have to act, the highest in benevolence take action but don't need to act. 
They do when doing isn't the right solution. They act when acting is not appropriate. Now, it gets worse. So those highest in righteousness take action and do need to act. Now, this sounds exactly like do, but the context suggests that it's something rather different. Now, when we think of someone who is righteous, well, that's a loaded term. Like, we think of it as being good, like a righteous person is someone who is always on the side of the angels, always someone who is doing the good thing. Um, but it is usually in the context of, like, warfare or combat or fighting. A righteous person is persecuted for their righteousness. A righteous person is true and just and appropriate, but it's aggressive. Um, like, they're shoving their rightness in your face as far as the Tao Te Ching is concerned. So they take action, and they do need to act. They do, but it, notice that it doesn't link them. Like... The lose lowest and do take action and do need to act. That's the suggestion here seems to be that like when action is necessary, those who have the lowest do they act. They do what is necessary. But in this case, those highest in righteousness take action and do need to act. The suggestion almost seems to be that action is needed, but it's not the action that the righteous person is doing. They are acting in a situation that requires action, but they're not performing the correct action. They're not doing what needs to be done. They are doing something instead of what needs to be done. They are using this situation to their advantage, I suspect. Um, and then we have propriety. Now, when we talk about propriety, propriety is like a synonym for courtesy or, you know, doing the right thing at the right time. It is mismanners and it is, you know, looking like a good person. Um, so notice the change here. Those highest in propriety take action. And if people don't reciprocate, roll up their sleeves and throw them out. The sort of example that I think of is like when it's around Christmas time, um, your friend will get you like this really awesome gift, even though you all agreed not to get each other gifts. And now you feel obligated to get them a gift. Um, the, the whole, they got you a gift now in, makes you responsible to do the same. And if you don't do the same, then they get upset with you or resent you for it. This is what seems to be suggested here by propriety. Um, when people are following propriety as opposed to righteousness or benevolence or de, they expect treatment. And the only reason why they're acting nice in the first place is so you will be nice to them as well. Um, they expect reciprocation. And if they don't get it, they chuck you out on your ear. So notice the succession here. Those highest in de take no action and don't need to act. They don't do because nothing needs to be done. Those lowest in do take action and do need to act. They do the right thing at the right time. Those highest in benevolence take action but don't need to act. They make a show of being good. Those highest in righteousness take action and do need to act. They make a show of being good even when what is necessary is real goodness. Like real decency. But then we have propriety. People who make a show of being good so you will be good to them. Not to solve problems, but itself causing new problems. And notice how this is followed up. 
Lose Tao De follows. Lose De Benevolence follows. Lose Benevolence Righteousness follows. Lose Righteousness Propriety follows. Propriety dilutes loyalty and sincerity. Confusion begins. Propriety, as much as we usually talk about it as, you know, a virtue, is, for Lao Tzu, a bad thing. Propriety causes people to distrust each other. It causes them to lie to each other. Like, when somebody gets you a gift for the sole purpose of you getting them a gift, they're lying to you and to themselves. They're pretending to be good when actually they're being selfish. And it is no longer possible to discern who is being good and, being, and who is being selfish. Propriety allows bad people to look good by the way that they are acting. And thus, things are confused. Loyalty is lost. Sincerity is misplaced. People are now deceiving one another about what constitutes good behavior and what constitutes bad behavior. And you can see this all the time. Like, we frequently call it hypocrisy, but it's way more sort of ingrained than this. Um, like, I realize that this is sort of specific to me and your own experience may change, but I realize that, like, one of the things that I... One of the places where I see this the most is in Christianity, actually. Um, and this is not, like, a slight against all Christians. This is just a sort of closeted acknowledgement um, that Christians are especially adept at this. Um, but there's sort of like this practice in Christianity where like when you go to church, there is a series of obligations that are placed on you and you get like pastors and other people at Christian churches who will sort of like guilt you into doing stuff you don't want to do because it's expected of you because like that's the right thing to do because that's what God wants you to do sort of. So, like, if you don't want to join the chorus because you're really busy and somebody comes up to you and is like, you should really join the chorus, you have such a great singing voice, and you're like, I really don't know if that's a good idea right now, they'll be like, well, don't you want to please God? And this is where it gets really gross, because on the surface, yes, you do want to please God. And yes, God says that you should, like, worship people and, or worship him, um, and that you should, you know, sing and, you know, give back to the church whenever you can. But, you know, the assumption here is that they know better than you what is right for you. And they are serving themselves. They are doing what they want to do using the appearance of goodness, of godliness. Um, this is hypocrisy. This is propriety as far as the Tao Te Ching is concerned. And if you follow it far enough, it will get rid of loyalty and it will get rid of sincerity. Because at this point, the person who is getting you to do the thing looks way better than you do because they knew or they knew what was right or thought it looks like they knew what was right and you were just being lazy. You were just shirking your responsibilities to the church. Unlike this heroic figure who has tricked you into doing this thing. This heroic figure who understands and gives of herself or himself and who always, always stands up and puts the church first. Thus, appearing righteous, appearing virtuous, and actually serving themselves. But notice that that's not it either. Notice that this is followed with foreknowledge glorifies the Tao, stupidity sets in. And now, normally we would think stupidity is a bad thing. Like, you don't want to be stupid. People make fun of you for being stupid. 
But in this text, stupidity is a virtue, remember. L being learned is being against the Tao. The learned are not wise, the wise are not learned, it says elsewhere. You want to be stupid. Um, you want to be, like, out of sync with, you know, conventional wisdom. So, to glorify the Tao, this foreknowledge that glorifies the Tao, stupidity will set in, but it's the good stupidity. The stupidity that sort of does not engage in these elaborate mind games and these elaborate systems by which bad people become good people and good people become bad people. So notice the conclusion here. So the ideal person dwells in substance, not dilution. In reality, not glory. Accepts one, rejects the other. The good person, the Taoist sage, and anyone who follows the Tao because the Tao itself does this, is substantial. They are real. They are not trafficking in appearances, in glory. They do not like try and you know snow everyone into thinking that they are something that they are not instead they just are what they are a good person is a good person not because they look good but because of what they do how they act who they are um they do not try and you know undermine the foundation of their goodness like the person who sort of tricks you into joining the chorus, they are at the end of the day using lies to do good things and diluting the power of the good thing that they are doing. Like if you were doing a quote quasi good thing, but doing harm to get it done, then it's not a good thing anymore. It is diluted. Instead, the good needs to be all the way through. It needs to be rock solid. Um, and that's where propriety cannot accomplish these things. Propriety is appearance of good, where de and dao are good through and through. So, I realize that, again, I'm, like, reaching here. I'm trying to express these things that, you know, can only vaguely be expressed um, in words that are just insufficient to the task. Um... But I think that these are important ideas that, the Lao, that Lao Tzu are, is trying to get across. Uh, I think this is very much at the heart of what he's talking about with the Tao and De, uh, with being what you are and not living up to standards that are sort of external or superficial. Um, and notice, too, that this has some major applications to just, like, the rest of the world as well. Um, Lao Tzu is not afraid to talk about how this applies to things like government or, you know, ruling. Now, admittedly, part of this is because, you know, being a sage, being a lettered person in ancient China, and this text was written, weirdly, roughly around the same time as our Platonic text was written. Like, the Tao Te Ching likely dates back to 4th or 3rd century BCE. Um, the story goes that Lao Tzu was this famous Taoist sage, like he went around talking to people, but he never wrote anything down, like he never put pen to paper. He could read, he could write, so you would think that he would, but he never did. Um, and then one day he decided to leave, like just out of the blue, he started heading out. Um, and he was just at the border, and he was stopping at a gatehouse for the night. And the guard at the gatehouse was like, Master, uh, Master Lao, how are you really leaving um, without ever committing anything to paper. Like, how can you abandon us 
without any, you know, without any legacy, without any help, without anything to teach us. Um, and according to the legend, that night Lao Tzu wrote the 81 stanzas of the Tao Te Ching, and then in the morning he left and was never seen again. Um, and that was the end of his career. Now obviously the story can be, is probably apocryphal, like it's really hard to say whether it's true or not, but I think the legend is kind of important to this purpose. Um, Lao Tzu was respected, but in being respected, he saw that as probably more of a problem than a benefit. Um, he was who he was, and if he was getting confused, if he was confusing who he was with what people thought he was, that, that was an issue. That's very much against the Tao. Um, but also these sages most likely had government positions. Like, again, if you were able to read and write, that probably meant that you had fairly high rank in the imperial system at this point. Um, at least, you know, before the Warring States period tears everything about, uh, uh, tears everything up in the next, you know, hundred years or so. Um, but notice what he says about government and about warfare especially. Um, take, for example, stanza 53. Um, the Great Tao is very smooth, but people like rough trails. The government is divided, fields are, fields are overgrown, granaries are empty, but the nobles' clothes are gorgeous. Their belts show off swords, and they are glutted with food and drink. Personal wealth is excessive. This is called thieves' endowment, but it is not Tao. Notice the emphasis here. The government is divided. The government is no longer functional. It is at odds with each other. It is fighting with each other. It is not benefiting the people like it's supposed to. And Lao Tzu emphasizes elsewhere that that's what government is for. Like large governments help the people, small governments serve the people. That's uh, what he says about this later. Um, and in this case, the government is doing neither. It is fighting against itself. That's all it can do. But fields are overgrown. Granaries are empty. People are starving as a result of this. Um, there's no organization in play, and as a result, the fields are just running rampant. Like, there's, there's no organization, there's no proper governance, there's no proper order to, to the universe at this point in time. People are suffering and dying, and yet, the nobles' clothes are gorgeous. Their belts show off swords. They are glutted with food and drink. The people starve, the government fails to accomplish its task, and yet the people who are in the government, the nobles, they are wealthy looking. They show off their clothes and their swords. They're well fed and fat and happy. Their personal wealth is excessive. Once again, the reality of the situation is out of sync with the appearance. The nobles have adopted all of the appearance of accomplishment without any of its substance. They're not doing their job, but it looks like they're doing their job. That's not Tao. This is called Thieves' Endowment, but it is not Tao. Like Lao Tzu stresses this. For Lao Tzu, government officials should only look wealthy when the country they are running is wealthy. Um, government officials should only look successful and powerful when their con the country that they are running is successful and powerful. They should be in sync with the people, not out of sync with the people. Um, so take, for example, uh, stanza 57, which is one of my favorites as far as, you know, like how to govern 
and how you know what Taoism looks like when it runs the show. Use the expected to govern the country. Use surprise to wage war. Use non-action to win the world. How do I know? Like this. The more prohibitions and rules, the poorer people become. The sharper people's weapons, the more they riot. The more skilled their techniques, the more grotesque their works. The more elaborate the laws, the more they commit crimes. Therefore, the sage says, I do nothing, and people transform themselves. I enjoy serenity, and people govern themselves. I cultivate emptiness, and people become prosperous. I have no desires, and people simplify themselves. Now, I've stressed earlier that like the key to being the Taoist sage is to act without acting. Uh, this is one of the passages that really sort of bears that out and talks about you know how that's supposed to look. Um, and the key here is that you lead by example and with a very light hand. You do not make more rules. You do not enact more laws. You do not make prohibitions. Because the more prohibitions and rules, the poorer people become. The more complicated the government structure, the more impossible it becomes to execute the government's will. The more there are restrictions and oversights in place, the more effort and wealth and uh, struggle has to go into enacting those restrictions. Um, the bureaucracy grows and grows until it becomes unmanageable. Now the country is just engaged in managing itself instead of actually doing, you know, day-to-day -day life. Likewise, the sharper people's weapons, the more they riot. And he has emphasized elsewhere, like I know that this is one of those that I frequently butt heads with my students on because this is Sussex County and we do love our guns here. Um, it's emphasized that um, weapons are not to be respected. There is no such thing as a beautiful weapon. Do not revere them because they are designed for killing. Um, and I know people will butt heads with me on that, and I'm not going to defend it here because, you know, I don't need to. Haha, <laughs> it's just me talking to myself. Um, but the stress here is that when people revere weapons, they revere the act of killing. Um, the sharper people's weapons, the more they riot, the more inclined they will be to use them. Um, a people that place great emphasis on their weapons will find excuses to use them. They will look for opportunities to riot. They will look for opportunities to kill one another, in short. So that's why the Taoist sage downplays weapons, does not carry a weapon, lets, encourages people to beat them into plowshares, to let them rust, to stop revering them. Likewise, the more skilled their techniques, the more grotesque their works. The more talented, the more cultured, the more cultivated they become, the more they practice art and the more that they practice literature, the more they tend to produce works that are themselves immoral. Um, the complications of these skills yield people to emphasize the skill over the substance. Um, they lose track of beauty in the name of the artifice itself. Um, and so they don't actually produce something worthwhile or beautiful. And then lastly, the more elaborate the laws, the more they commit crimes. Like the more prohibitions and rules, the emphasis here is the more you restrict, the more people are going to violate those restrictions, just, you know, logically. But the emphasis is in the second part of this. I do nothing, and people transform themselves.
Now notice, like, throughout you will see other passages that also sort of buttress this. Um, if you don't revere people at heroes, people, or if you don't revere people as heroes, people will not kill one another. If you do not idolize wealth, people will not steal from one another. Um, the emphasis is you set an example. You do not enact, like, your will. You do not pass laws to enforce your will. You do not force people to do what you say for them to do. Instead, you do and they follow. I do nothing, and people transform themselves. If you do not stand up as an example of selfishness, of greed, if you do not, like, rule the country with an eye towards its profit, then neither will your people. They will transform themselves. They will stop seeking wealth. They will stop stealing. They will stop killing. Because they will see that it is best to be happy in and of yourself. Like I said earlier, you know, when you are be being the best version of yourself, when you are, you know, not self-perfecting, not aspiring or potential, but actual, just being who you are, you know, you don't need money to do that. Like, to some degree, you need to survive for sure, but if there's no reason to accumulate wealth, if there's no advantage to it for you, if you recognize that you are not going to be made better with money and power and position and a really nice house and all of the trappings, then you're not going to fight for that. You're not going to want it. And if you don't want it, then other people can't take it from you. So you no longer value wealth. And if nobody values wealth, then nobody steals. And if nobody steals, then everything can be more peaceful like that. There's no reason to murder except for personal growth, for personal enrichment, for personal strife. But if you are happy with who you are, if you are happy with the person you are, not worried about like what you are going to become or what is missing from you, then you're not going to steal, you're not going to murder, you're not going to cause trouble. You're not going to suffer or cause suffering. I do nothing and people transform themselves. I enjoy serenity, and people govern themselves. I cultivate emptiness, and people become prosperous. I have no desires, and people simplify themselves. Over and over in the Tao Te Ching and in other Eastern traditions, the emphasis is to have no desires. Disconnect from the world of desire, from all of the people who want things. Um, one of the central tenets of Buddhism, perhaps one of the, like, the key, most important tenets of Buddhism, um, is to separate yourself from the passions, um, to disconnect from your desires. And the reasoning for this is really straightforward. Like, in the, the Four Noble Truths that Buddha lays down starts basically with the truth that life is pain. Um... That's the basic truth of Buddhism. Life is pain. Um, there is no way around that except to get rid of life. And there's a certain amount of profundity to this. Like, think about it from this perspective. Um, who hurts you more? The people you know or the people you don't know? Like, if you 
meet some rando off the street, like you're walking along the sidewalk and somebody comes up to you and says, wow, you are a terrible person. You will probably turn to them and be like, you don't know who I am. Like, what the heck should I care what you think of me? But if your best friend comes to you and says, you are a terrible person, that hurts. That hurts deeply. So the solution in Buddhism is don't get connected. Don't give people that power. Don't throw, put yourself out there in such a way that you can be betrayed or abused. If you have fewer loves, if you have fewer connections, if you have fewer desires, then you won't be disappointed and you won't be betrayed and you won't suffer. Instead, disconnect. Become completely unselfish. Like, have kill desire inside of yourself and let yourself just be. Um, and that doesn't mean that you can't love. Like, it doesn't prescribe possessive love. Possessive love can be betrayed. Possessive love can backfire. Possessive love is what causes people to, you know, be able to hurt you more than ever before. Um, but it does prescribe compassion. Like a love for all things, across the board, equally. A recognition of the goodness of all things. Of the, you know, beauty in all things. That's very much the prescription of Buddhism. Your connection is not to individuals, things that will pass away, but instead to the entire cosmos, the things that endure, the things that will pass away, but which you can admire while they pass away. Um, like, losing something that you love is only hurts because of what it means to you. If you recognize it from outside of yourself, it's just a part of the process. Stuff dies. Stuff passes away. That's the way of things. And there is goodness in that. The only reason you can't see it when it's someone close to you is because you're too close to it. You are thinking entirely of the effect it will have on you. Get rid of that, and you don't suffer. So, like Buddhists, the Taoist sage prescribes, do not desire desire is not Tao. The Tao has everything it needs. You have everything you need. If you only stop wanting something that you're not. If you only want to be something that you're not. Um, you, from the perspective of the Taoist sage, are perfect in and of yourself. Like, you have nothing to prove, you have nothing to accomplish, you have no reason to do anything that you don't want to do. Well, you know, some of the things that you want to do, you probably shouldn't do anyway for other reasons, but, you know, it's tricksy. At the very least, there's no reason to fight, to struggle, to contend, to compete, to try and be something that you just are not and never will be. So... The Taoist sage basically says, do nothing. Be yourself. Like, relentlessly yourself. Nothing but yourself. And by doing that, everything will fall into place. Um, the world around you will fall into place. It will, you know, admire this example because, you know, people are seeking this all of the time and missing it so royally. Like, so completely. 
you know, people get confused all of the time over what will make them happy. People are the worst at figuring out how to be happy. Like, given, you know, every opportunity to make themselves happy, people will always choose the wrong thing every time. Every time. Like, without fail. People suck. It's a thing. So the Taoist sage prescribes, don't try. Don't aspire. Don't strive. Don't compete. Don't contend. Just be who you are. Because if you can't be happy doing that, then you're not going to get happy any other way. And if the world can't come to some consensus of doing that, then it's not going to come to any consensus any other way. Like, the fundamental tenet of of the Tao Te Ching is basically stop being what you're not. Be what you are. If you do that, you'll be way better, way happier than anything else you could be doing. Alright. Somehow I carved a lecture out of that. And I'm not entirely sure how, and I hope it went well, and I hope it made sense, and I wasn't just, like, weird for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, but whatever. I'm sure I it went fine. Like, I was myself. Everything is great. Um, but I do want to stress that things are going to be rather different for next week. Um, next week we're reading the Ecclesiastes, which is one of the books of the Bible. Surprise, we're reading the Bible in a philosophy class. Um, this is going to be really important because, A, it's a great work of philosophical wisdom and is very important to, like, the understanding of, you know, how the Bible works and, you know, there's a lot of good stuff in it. Um, for our purposes, though, I want to stress that this is not, like, the conversation we're going to have about the Ecclesiastes is not going to be limited to the Ecclesiastes. Um, we're going to spend the next several weeks after we read the, Eccles the Eccle Ecclesiastes talking about medieval philosophy, talking about modern philosophy, and most of the thinkers we're going to read are going to be very much interested in talking about God. Not the God of the East, but the God of the West. Um, the God of the Christians, specifically. Um, which means we have to talk about the Bible before we can get into any of that. So the lecture next week, yeah, I'll probably, hopefully, fit in some about the actual Ecclesiastes and what it's prescribing, but my goal is going to be to basically somehow cram the entirety of Judaism and Christianity into one lecture and one class discussion or whatever else is going on online. Um, so let me stress on your end that all questions are welcome. Um, this is my goal to sort of set the record straight as to what Christians and Jews believe. Um, so in the discussion boards or in the con class conversation or like personal private emails or whatever, if you have questions about Christianity or Judaism, now is the time to raise them. Because um, we need to get this straight so we understand like who God is and how this whole system works and how the gospel works and what sin is and all those important things before we get into Aquinas and Descartes and Hume and they start tearing them apart and reevaluating how Christianity works in a real way. Um, when we talk about who God is in this class, this is the God we're going to be primarily focused on. So we need to like really get this clear and straight um, before we jump into all that stuff. Um, so again, all questions in all forms are welcome. Do not worry about offending me. I will absolutely like be professional throughout all this. 
Um, just so you know, like I am in fact coming at this from a Christian perspective. Um, and I say this not like to warn you and sort of like prepare you or bias you in some way. Um, I say this because I'm speaking as an insider on this one. My experience as a Christian is really weird. Um, I, my undergraduate degree, I studied the Bible from the perspective of atheists and like literature scholars. Uh, during my master's in Boston, I studied it under the tutelage of Catholics. So I understand the Catholic perspective and I got my second master's at a Baptist seminary, like a hardcore fundamentalist evangelical Baptist seminary. So I have seen the Bible from like every perspective there is to see it, except like Orthodox Christianity. Um, and I've done a fair amount of research about Orthodoxy in the meantime. Like I am, this is probably as close to my expertise as we're going to hit in this class. Um, short of talking about like language ethics which is not a thing except in my brain. Um, so again, like, don't worry about offending me. I have heard it all before. Like, I have heard people from the hardcore atheist perspective lambast Christians for being idiots. I have heard hardcore Christians, like, defend the earth being made in seven days. Um, I have basically been around the block on this one and nothing you can say or ask will surprise me. Um, so by all means, ask away. Any questions you have about Christianity or Judaism, just keep them coming. I am eager to set the record straight. I know there's tons of bad information out there. I know that like even at church you will get a biased take on what Christianity looks like. Um, so by all means, now is the time. Let's, let's fix this. Let's talk about God for reals. Um, so yeah, like... Don't be a stranger. Ask those questions. Um, and next week, hopefully, I'll be able to deliver a lecture that somehow compacts the entirety of Christianity and Judaism into an hour and 15 minutes. Because this one wasn't crazy enough. Anyway, until then, good luck and happy reading.